Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more. Subscribe if you haven't, YouTube, Spotify, leave a like, comment, whatever it might be, support the show as it continues to grow. On this one here, we have a scientist, a writer, an educator, has many research papers, also two substacks and various <laughs> writings of sorts. My guest today is Dr. Nicole Barbaro. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am very glad to have you on. You have many books in the background. This is a spirited time. And before we get into the material and your background, recent happening in your occurrences is the union of you with a partner of sorts. Can you mention a little bit about that? And we send congratulations, by the way, from the internet. Thank you so much. Yes, I did just get married on Friday, so I have all my new bling on from the wedding. So it's been an exciting weekend. So happy to get back into the swing of uh, intellectual conversation. So it'll be fun to be here. This is a wonderful thing. And long live intellectual conversation. I highly value it. And I can see that you also value it as well. This is great. <laughs> now, before we get into the material, can you tell us where you currently are? Uh, what you're currently studying and researching or working on and how you got there in the first place. Yeah, so I have a kind of a non-traditional academic kind of background. So I do have a PhD in psychology, experimental psychology specifically. Um, and I studied education, um, or I'm sorry, evolution, human development, and have recently after my PhD moved into kind of education as a professional career. Uh, so after my PhD, I started at a company called WGU Labs. We're a nonprofit that works in the education technology and online learning space primarily. Um, and I've been there for three years now and I will soon be starting a new position, which I'll, uh, wait for a little while on the internet to announce that I haven't officially started yet, but, uh, this is my last week in my current role. I'll still be in the higher ed space. So a lot of my work has focused on basically just broadly trying to improve higher education. I really value higher education. So help to improve the, you know, research and educational discourse for students specifically. And I started as a research scientist for a couple of years in the higher ed space, and now I've moved into communications and content creation. So along with my sub stacks that I write on personally, I do a lot of writing professionally, which is how I spend most of my day on social media um, and writing. So it's a pretty interesting career path for an academic, but it's mm -hmm. very fun. Writing is a great way to, is it the best way to make thoughts showcase what you're thinking or is it the best way to are you able to clarify your mind when you do writing or do you come up with new things when you do writing how would you describe it i think it's a little bit of both but i would say writing helps you think about things more clearly and actually put them into um, ways that other people can get access to your thoughts. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking in our head. Um, I run a lot and that's when I think through a lot of, you know, different things. I don't listen to music or anything. So I just kind of sit with my own thoughts for a long time while I'm running. Um, but until you actually write them down, you know, it forces you to clarify your thinking, put it in a, in a logical order. Um, and it's the best way for other people to, you know, get access to your thoughts in a, in a clear way. So I think writing is extraordinarily important for anyone who's, you know, interested in kind of thinking, um, and intellectual level for a living. So the more you write, the better you think. And it also helps you read more than you can read, which also helps you write more. So it's all interconnected, but that's true with all the books back there as well. <laughs> I saw a quote today that talked about how looking at yourself is the best way to solve all items, the time with yourself is the solution and then looking mm -hmm. elsewhere will never resolve things mm, that's interesting i like that yeah so you're doing that when you're running that's cool <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is very good now you have two substacks i want to mention them because substacks are super cool in 2022 and have uh topics of i like text and articles and you have two different ones one of them is called bookmarked one of them is called periodic ponderings with alliteration there no one will forget it kind of like blackberry and palm pilot and those things it's unforgettable oh, now, awesome. <laughs> the bookmark newsletter is maybe about books can you tell us about that one yeah so bookmarked um is my main subject that i spend most of my time on like if you're looking for something very consistent that one comes out about twice a week um and basically you know i like to read a lot as you can see and I started it because, you know, nonfiction reading um, and nonfiction books 
aren't as popular as, you know, the fiction industry kind of in the book and publishing space. Like you can go anywhere online and there's just fiction books everywhere, but good nonfiction that's not your popular celebrity memoirs or, you know, kind of the 10 interesting like self-help books that come out a year. Um, there's so much more cool books in the nonfiction space, especially with science and current affairs, um, really interesting biographies of people, you know, science discoveries. There's so much cool books to be reading. And I wanted a space that I could share out what I'm reading and kind of be a source for really interesting nonfiction reads that you're not really going to find elsewhere online. Um, I started reading a lot. I've always read a lot since I was a kid, but I started reading a lot of nonfiction in college when I was an undergraduate um, for kind of obvious reasons. And I just never really stopped and I don't read fiction anymore. Um, and what really kicked my reading into to high gear was in graduate school with my advisor, um, Todd Shackelford, who I think reads more than any other person I know. His office is just filled with books. And every time I would meet with him, he's like, oh, have you seen these like 10 new books that have come out this week? Have you read these? And I'm like, no. So I started reading a lot, trying to keep up with him. Um, and he was always my source for just interesting books that were coming out. And I was like, how do you find these? Where do you find these? And I feel like now I've gotten a good process um, and ability and kind of big network built out where I really do come across a lot of interesting nonfiction books. And so I kind of want to be that person for folks that follow my Substack and follow me on social media to kind of be that person that's like, oh, look at that cool book that just came out. So the, the Substack comes out on every Tuesday and Thursday. Most of the posts are just kind of a brief, about 500 word review of a book. Um, and then twice a month, I do a curated reading list. So I had one come out this morning on kind of the ultimate book guide to Silicon Valley tech books that I've been reading. Um, and then at the end of every month, I do a little post that's just like, here are some of the new books that are on my, you know, reading list for, you know, that I've added to my never ending Amazon wish list that I'll never be able to read through, but want to share those out. So, I mean, if you follow the Substack, probably every month you're probably getting about 20 to 30 different interesting nonfiction book recommendations. So that's that's kind of my main uh, writing outlet at the at the moment. This is a cool one. It reminds me slightly of the other past guest, Chris Boutte, host of The Rewired Soul. He has his book, uh, nonfiction book yeah. output that he puts in there. So with that and yours and others, suddenly we have a link to the nonfiction books that are relevant. And I've read quite a few of the ones that have been mentioned. Fantastic. That's cool. Now, a nice name, by the way, bookmark. It could have been something irrelevant, but it matches. It matches. It <laughs> Periodic Ponderings is slightly different. How is that one? And that one is not book recommendations. What do you share on there? Periodic Ponderings, um, I I have admit, I will admit that I haven't written on that one in a little while. I have a lot of blog ideas. It's been a very busy few months with uh, interviewing for a new job um, and wedding planning and all that. But I do plan to get back into that a little bit more uh, a little more consistently, but periodic ponderings is really my space that I have written a lot about higher education broadly. So I work professionally in higher education. I've obviously been in higher education for a long time with getting my PhD. So I have a lot of thoughts and opinions on the higher education space. So that is one of my main outlets where I share them. Um, and then another uh, thing that I typically write about on there is also alternative PhD careers. Um, so like most PhDs, I went and got my PhD to become a professor. That was my goal, um, was to teach and do research at a university in a tenure track position. Um, most people that are familiar with higher ed understand that the job market is not as friendly as, you know, we'd hope it would be. There's not that many jobs open. Um, and I wasn't necessarily willing to sacrifice where I wanted to live. And, you know, a lot of the sacrifices that come with having to obtain a tenure track position. So I went kind of a different route. So I work in the nonprofit space now, still work in higher ed and still work with academics. Um, so I talk a lot about um, just kind of how to navigate that. I didn't really have anyone to help advise me on that career journey when I was finishing up my PhD and applying for jobs still at universities, just not as a tenure track uh, professor. So I use that space to write a lot about tips for going on the job market, you know, the non-tenure track job market, um, I have a blog I'm working on right now of how to interview, <laughs> you know, because that's always, I bombed many interviews when I first started. So Bomb. I try to yeah, try to share all the mistakes and advice that I've learned over three years of interviewing for jobs and working in, you know, kind of a non-tenure track role to help PhD students learn about other paths and just have more information available to them. So it's a lot of musings just on higher education 
broadly kind of when I feel like it. It's not necessarily a consistent publication like the bookmarked one, but it's a space where you can go for lots of uh, opinions and thoughts on the higher education space. On that one, actually, if I was to broadly put that out there, 2022 and moving into, let's say, until 2025, looking forward, what do you, what are, what do you see in higher education? Any trends, anything you're looking at right now? Is it disappointing? Is it appointing? We'll call it the positive end of disappointing. Yeah. How do you look at that? It's in a really interesting space right now from my perspective. What I see moving forward is a lot more integration of this hybrid learning model. So with the pandemic, that really served as a big catalyst for online learning. So in 2019, there was about maybe a third of students that were taking at least one online course um, during their undergraduate studies. And then you know, in 2020 and early 2021, that was up to about 90% of students, over 90% of students. So we kind of doubled online or tripled online learning within a year, which is an extraordinarily fast rate. You know, online learning has been along, around for a while, but we have really accelerated that. Um, and we're still seeing some issues. You know, students are struggling with the quality of the learning experiences. Professors who, you know, don't really get training on how to teach in the first place are now rusted into teaching online, which I can say, you know, I still teach uh, part-time at our local university here in uh, Utah. And I taught one online class and personally, I hated it. I did not like it. I hardly interacted with the students. It was all asynchronous. It just wasn't what I was interested in doing. So, um, you know, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this hybrid learning because students want it. You know, there are a lot of benefits to it with the flexibility that it offers. Um, you know, because we have more students accessing higher education now, you know, being the 18 or 19 year old full-time student that goes to live at a residential four-year university isn't necessarily the norm um, for most students. And so these online kind of hybrid multimodal learning, I think is going to continue to evolve and change over time, but I think it's going to be a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, popular and consistent, but it's going to be I think the next few years are still going to be kind of in a struggling space of figuring out how can we make sure that we're delivering on quality? How do we make sure that faculty have the training and support and development resources that they need to do their jobs um, in kind of this new space when a lot of them have been trained like I was to teach in person? Um, so there's a lot of difficulties. The teaching challenges that occurred in online space are not the same ones that occurred in in-person space. So I think the next few years, we, we've seen a lot of improvements over the last year specifically in some of the research that I've overseen for online learning, but it's it's going to be still a few years of uh, some struggles and kind of a gap in quality and perception from the student perspective uh, between in-person and online learning. So there's, there's going to be a lot of experimentation is my kind of core prediction for the next few years. That's cool. What's most inspiring in the category? <sighs> What's most inspiring? I think... That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've thought of that. I think what's most inspiring though is just the fact that we are trying to experiment with different learning options um, and trying to, I think it served kind of this thrust into force change, if you will, over the last few years. It's really brought a key focus on the importance of teaching quality because this is a soapbox that I love to get on. Um, is faculty and teaching development is so important. Um, when I first got in the classroom, as I mentioned earlier, like PhD students aren't really trained on how to teach. It's just like, oh, you got your master's now? Here's a class, figure it out. Um, which, I mean, if I look, I still look back and cringe on my first semester of any past students from like, fall of 2017 or watching this. I'm so sorry that you have, I have three of them right class. here. We're actually bringing them over. Mike, <laughs> you got over them all <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was, I was just so rigid. I had no idea what I was doing. It was just like, just strict lecturing, strict exams. It was just an uninspiring room. And to look at where I'm at now with how I run my courses, um, you know, I took it all upon myself. I, I utilized our teaching and learning center on campus, which almost no one ever even goes to, which is really sad, um, to learn how to be a better teacher. I went to workshops and figured out how I can teach in a way that allows all the students in my classroom to, you know, be inspired and think learning is fun. So I think, you know, what's inspiring out of the last few years is it's been difficult for higher ed. It's been difficult for students. It's been difficult for faculty. But I think it's put a spotlight on how important teaching and learning um, and how we teach our teaching practices, how that impacts student learning, 
I think we have a much clearer focus on the importance of that now. Um, so I find that really inspiring and I'm hoping we can hold on to that um, and continue to focus on improving our teaching practice um, to ultimately improve the student learning experience in the classroom, which is something that I take very seriously. So I think that would be the inspiring piece. That's cool. One thing I checked with Andrew Stolman, he's a professor at Occidental College over here. And I wasn't sure if I, my question made sense, but when you are teaching, is it more to bring knowledge to the students or to have them get to a point where it's like close to, and then they figure it out at that moment and it was elucidated on their own? How would you describe that part? I would say it's, it's a little bit of both and it kind of depends on the level, but I would, I would go uh, a little bit more, I would probably lean a little bit more toward the latter of helping students figure it out themselves a little bit. Um, when I was learning how to teach, um, I did have like a quick semester class and the professor took the philosophy that teachers are in the classroom to be quote, a fire hose of information to students. And honestly, looking back on it now, I think that's some of the worst advice we can give to teachers. Um, and because our point isn't like, I read a lot. I know a lot. I've been to school a lot. I can sit here and just spew a bunch of information, but that's not really helpful. And if we look at how learning occurs, especially like online learning, and I think why a lot of students struggle with it is typically it's just, here's a bunch of information and students have to navigate through the, through it themselves, which I don't think is really effective. And how I run my classrooms now is, you know, my first and foremost focus in the classroom is making learning fun again. Um, and sparking curiosity in students. So, you know, for more intro level classes, when I teach intro to lifespan development, I do more of a lecture based of here's information because it's hard for students to talk about topics if they have no kind of foundation. And that's why we structure, you know, the curriculum as we do in college, where we start with lectures and move up to, you know, deeper, more engaging seminars. But I still make it interactive. I still have group activities built into that. I have a conversation with students as I'm lecturing rather than me just talking to them. Um, and then in my seminar courses, I build in assignments and work into the class that allow them to go research things that they're interested in. As long as it's like, you know, there's a string of connection to what we're talking about. I want them to get the tools that they need to be able to research information on their own, learn things on their own and figure out and communicate what they've learned in writing and verbally in class. So, you know, it is part of our job to share information. That's why we, we become experts in our fields and share information with students, but we also have to, and I think we have a responsibility to teach them how to learn not just certain information, um, especially in the social sciences where things are much more in flux um, in terms of the content information that we have. I try to teach them research skills, how to find research articles, how to read them, how to interpret them, because those are skills that are going to be more useful to them across their education and also in their personal, um, you know, lives on the internet of navigating through information. But my big goal, especially over the last two years after teaching online is sparking curiosity in students. And by making topics interesting, by making the classroom inclusive and engaging, students now feel comfortable to discuss things, talk with each other, research interesting topics, bring in new ideas to class. And to me, that's really what the essence of learning is rather than just, you know, going online and memorizing a bunch of information from books and, and websites. So that's kind of my, my goal when I'm teaching now is sparking curiosity. So I think that's overall better for students long-term. Curiosity is key. When there's some sort of emotional engagement, we remember what happens and it turns out you are not a firefighter with a fire hose, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I think too, it's, I think some of the issues with, um, teaching is something that I've noticed as I've been, te I've been teaching for more than five years now, and this becomes more apparent over time is you forget what you knew at, you know, I'm teaching like sophomores and juniors in college and I forget what I knew at that time. And I think, you know, we, there's a lot of discussion, um, online about like making sure courses are rigorous and like them knowing everything, but which, you know, is important. Like students need to, to learn new content and new knowledge. But sometimes I think we forget the path that it takes to get to that point that the professors are at. And, you know, this is a well-known phenomenon in teaching, which is like the curse of knowledge. You forget how much, you know, and especially how you got to know that. 
when I think of back to my undergrad years, I don't think I knew crap as a sophomore or junior compared to what I do now. And it's, it's hard to remember where students are at. And in my classes, sometimes they don't get all the way there, right? The students aren't all the way where I want them to be on a specific topic, where I am on a specific topic, but that should be expected in normal it took me, you know, a decade to get to that point. But I like to see that they're progressing, you know, in, in the right direction. My class can't do everything for them, but, um, you know, we just have to remember where, how long it takes to get to certain levels, giving them those core ideas. But if we make it interesting, now that student is more likely to leave the class and keep looking, keep reading, keep engaging in that topic. And they have the skills and the tools to do so rather than a student who comes in and is forced to remember all this information um, with really negative feedback. And then they don't go learn anything more. So who's, you know, in five years, who's going to be better off? And, you know, personally, I think it's the students that, you know, didn't maybe got 80% of the way there and then took it upon themselves to keep learning rather than the students who maybe remembered a fraction of the information really well and then hated the topic so much because the class was uninteresting and then never look, you know, and engage more in the conversation. So, you know. I'm sure there's lots of people that disagree with that, but <laughs> I like that perspective at least. It's got a long-term nature to it. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that long-term always wins out by the nature of it. And so within three, four five years, person that consistently, like let's say same thing with gym activity, does some amount versus they did a little bit uh, intensely and then quit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no comparison to one that keeps going in some trajectory or at least explores a tangent from that. There's something there versus the other one left it. Well, they'd almost got negated in the process. Exactly. The consistency of curiosity. Our schools today, I think, do an excellent job overall of killing curiosity in children um, and even teenagers and adults. You know, So I, I want to make sure that I give them an experience where learning is fun, curiosity is rewarded, and it motivates them to continue to, to learn. So that's always my goal as, as a professor in the classroom. That's cool. It's got to still be fun in some way or interesting or else we just disappear from that category. Exactly. Now, in the category of research, you have much across various topics <laughs> and over years, as may be known. And so related to that, I want to go into a few of your categories of research mm-hmm. and uh, look at them in some detail. Sure. Now, one is you've covered quite a bit about attachment systems and attachment orientation. Can you tell us uh, what this is related to? Is this relationships? What does attachment orientation mean? And what have you looked at specifically? Yeah, this is, uh, I think, one of my favorite topics um, that I've researched. As you mentioned, I've researched a lot of topics, which I think is what now looking back on it, it was probably what would make a tenure track position really hard for me because I get interested in a lot of different things. So being in the space that I'm in now, I can kind of pop around to different things, which I think is a lot more fun. Um, but attachment research is something that I really focus my um, comprehensive exams on as a PhD student, also my dissertation. So this is an area that I'm very passionate about and I think is some of my most original work coming out of my doctoral studies. And for me, I actually, I started with a very interesting relationship with attachment research. Um, It was first uh, introduced to it uh, when I was in between undergraduate and graduate school. I was working as a lab manager at the University of Pittsburgh at the time. And the uh, uh, faculty member I was working with at the time did some attachment research and showed me it. And I was like, I don't like this theory. It's very fluffy. I don't think it's like really predictive. It's just kind of like trying to explain everything, which, you know, therefore it explains really nothing. And I was like, I don't like it. <laughs> I, was like, I, don't wanna, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to do anything with this. And so he he showed me a chapter, um, a book chapter on like the evolution of attachment systems by Jeffrey Simpson um, that came out in I think it was a 2009 handbook of attachment research. And I read it and I was like, okay, this is this is more interesting. You know, I, I come from an evolutionary background, so if you add evolution to anything, I, I think it's just inherently more interesting and more satisfying uh, to read. So I started, you know, warming up to it a bit, and I kind of you know, didn't really do much with it for a couple of years um, until I got into my doctoral studies. Um, and when I was working with Todd Shackelford, mate retention behavior was kind of a big focus of his lab. Um, historically, what he had worked on and what he had worked on with his advisor, David Buss. So there's a long history of mate retention research. Um, but most of that research came from like a sperm competition theory perspective. And it was a very male centric kind of approach to understanding mate retention behavior. And 
the more I read about attachment research and attachment theory, um, especially from an evolutionary perspective, the more interested I became in taking that theory and kind of refining it um, and really integrating some more comparative research and behavioral genetics research and to kind of par down attachment theory into a much more cohesive, modern evolutionary kind of framework and account um, and integrating it with mate retention behavior. So that was my large goal. And I have a couple key papers um, on attachment theory and specifically with mate retention behavior. Um, and long story, you're kind of like the summary version of that. And then we, we can see where we kind of want to want to go with that is I proposed an attachment systems framework um, which is most clearly articulated in my social personality psychology compass. I think I'm messing up the journal, <laughs> but it's my 2020 solo author paper, my only solo author paper. I think it's my favorite paper I've ever done. Um, but that really proposes this attachment systems framework, um, really digging down and defining what the selection pressures are for the adult attachment system. I have very little to quibble with with parent-infant attachment. I think that's really well established. There's been a ton of work in that area. Um, but the adult attachment system, like why we form romantic attachments to partners, why we get married <laughs> to people um, that we become emotionally attached to. Um, really good timing on this topic. Um, timing. Yeah, it's, it works out great. Um, so, you know, why that exists, I didn't think we actually had a really good explanation for that. So I really dug down and proposed you know, a clear framework of what selection pressures led to adult attachments forming because they're very, they're pretty rare in the animal world um, to have these adult, these attachments to romantic partners. They're inherently different than infant parent attachments, even though they share some uh, key similarities, but they function differently. Um, and that's really where the nature of attachment systems, the title of the paper comes in. So I proposed this new framework and then um, really digging into the selection pressures for why adult attachments exist, what attachment looks like in a more, um, you know, kind of present manifestation sense, which is where mate retention comes in. Um, and my argument in that paper is really that attachment, romantic attachment bonds really function to regulate the pair bonded relationship and mate retention behaviors being kind of a key manifestation of those attachment bonds. Um, and I, you know, it's a new integration and kind of new synthesis of a lot of the work that's already been done and some of my work in the attachment mate retention area. Um, so I'll kind of pause there. It's kind of the big picture, but we can see where we want to jet off. I don't want to go on a random monologue <laughs> off into the middle of nowhere on it, but. No, it's great. Now, that one, by the way, was in Social and Personality Psychology Compass, which I think okay. you were right. I think I mixed up the words or something, but yes. Interesting term. Possibly. I like <laughs> now, um, now, for attachment, do we look at how people attach in general? Are you looking at uh, something related to uh, their youth and their personality traits? Mm -hmm. What are you looking at in terms of what pulls two together or keeps them uh, retaining one another? I think that's a really interesting area and probably an area that I have some of the biggest quibbles with kind of like the status quo of attachment research. Um, we so, want quibbles. <laughs> I will tell you. <laughs> it's all the quibbles. Uh, so standard attachment research. So I, I refer to it in my writing as standard attachment theory. So it's kind of the mainstream attachment theory that has been developed since Bulbley in the 1960s. Um, and what this kind of perspective uh, generally shows is that typically we attach, uh, assess attachment styles in infancy, typically with the mother, just because historically those are the folk, the mothers are the ones that, you know, bring the kids in. Um, and then evolutionarily attachments form between the mothers and the offspring, just because in mammals, especially mothers are the ones that are nursing. Um, so this theory holds that typically there's a Assessment of an attachment style starting at about 12 months to two or three years old. Um, kids are assigned a specific kind of attachment classification. It's usually done categorically um, at the young level. And the idea is that these attachment uh, styles, you know, kind of these broader attachment styles for children, uh, for young children, are predictive of how they will engage in relationships moving forward and attachment relationships moving forward. Um, and this you can see online, you know, and kind of 
weaving through a lot of popular psychotherapy kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, all your relationship issues are due to relationship issues with your parents, you know, how your parents treated you as, you know, giving you your expectations for relationships. And this is why you, you know, behave the way you do with your romantic partners and with your friends. Um, and it's a very kind of what we call like a domain general approach to attachment. So, if, you know, say I was anxiously attached to, you know, my parent as a child, I carry that expectation of people being unpredictable, for example, in close relationships. And therefore that's going to, you know, drive a little bit of how I relate to say romantic partners. I'm going to also think they're unpredictable, maybe unreliable, and therefore kind of have also a similar anxious, um, sorry, my cat decided to come in. Um, also an anxious attachment style as an adult. Um, largely I think that's kind of, less true than it, um, is made out to be. So for a few reasons, one, what we know from, um, you know, uh, attachment research with adults is usually we use self-report measures. Uh, so adult attachments measured in a, on a continuous scale, like most personality traits and things are, um, as compared to children when it's categorical. But what we know is people are, have different specific attachment orientations to different people. So for example, someone could be anxiously attached to one partner, they get a new partner and maybe they're securely attached to that partner or avoidantly attached to that partner. We also know now that that's also true for young kids. So you can have different attachment orientations to different caregivers that you're with a lot of the time. Um, and I think this is pretty intuitive to most people that, you know, have different types of relationships with their parents. Um, one parent may be reliable. One parent may be super reliable. One may be distant. Um, we see this in our history with romantic partners. We have different types of relationships with them. So I generally think this idea of broad attachment styles and this, what is called attachment continuity over the lifespan there's a grain of truth to it, but I don't think it's the whole story. And I think more of this individual attachment perspective is more accurate in my opinion. And this also comes from some really great longitudinal work that's been done kind of dispelling this idea of continuity from infancy to adulthood. Um, and for example, a 2014 study uh, by Gro, um, I forget her first name on the study, but she actually, it's probably one of the best longitudinal studies I've seen on attachment where they actually correlate attachment, uh, orientations with parents from like 18 months all the way up to 18 years. And that long-term correlation does not exist. <laughs> there is no significant long-term correlation between how you're attached to your mother at a year and a half versus how you're attached to your romantic partners as an 18 year old. They, they stopped at 18. Um, if you look at short-term cor correlations, you know, there's small significant correlations there, but long-term you can end up in a very different spot in kind of the attachment space than you were as, as an infant. Um, and we also know from adult uh, attachment research that the if we assess a general attachment style and correlate that with different aspects of relationship functioning, um, that general attachment style is going to be less predictive than a specific attachment orientation. So for example, this would look like if I we're researching with adults and just saying, oh, in general, in romantic relationships, are you comfortable with emotional intimacy? Like those kind of questions versus with your current partner, are you comfortable with emotional intimacy? So once we get to the partner specific level, how you're attached to that specific partner is much more predictive of relationship functioning than kind of these general ideas, which to me makes intuitive sense because we don't relate to every individual person the same way because they have their own personality and, you know, background experiences and those relationships with different people are going to be very different. Um, so I like looking at attachment as more of a specific relationship orientation rather than a general style of attachment, um, which I don't think are quite the same things. And if we really start to break it down into how attachment influences relationship functioning, it doesn't really make sense if we're looking at these very broad general attachment styles, um, especially when it comes to adult relationships from an evolutionary perspective. So does that mean that let's say somebody goes from one partner to the next, to the next, that even though they will have a pattern or something they tend to link with because of their nature mm -hmm. with each person, it's a different dynamic that can develop and it doesn't have to be the same exact pairing. Yeah. So 
you know, relationships can look very different with, uh, you know, one person with a specific partner can look very different than with another partner. And of course, this isn't to negate the idea that we have past experiences, um, you know, that accumulate over time, but what's going to be from the attachment perspective. So I like using attachment anxiety as a good example, just because it's a little bit more, uh, clear than attachment avoidance for a lot of reasons. But let's say, for example, we have someone that was in a previous relationship and they have high attachment anxiety. So this person, um, is characterized by, you know, high, high dependency on the relationship, um, lots of validation in the relationship, um, a fearfulness of the relationship, you know, falling apart or that person, you know, rejecting them. They're very sensitive to those things, uh, moments of rejection. Um, they tend to report higher jealousy in that relationship, which also motivates a lot more, you know, kind of negative behaviors. Are these attached to like neuroticism in the big five category? Anxious attachment is, yes. It's very highly correlated, like 0.4 to 0.5 with neuroticism. So very highly correlated with that personality trait. Um, so let's say we have someone in that relationship, that in relationship number one, um, and if they fill out these attachment measures, they come back with very high attachment anxiety and their partner is distant. Maybe they're a highly avoidant partner which increases that perception of rejection, of distance, um, which further kind of fuels that attachment anxiety. Um, so we would say that that person has a very high attachment anxiety and their partner potentially has a high avoidance. Maybe that combination just ratchets up the attachment anxiety in the one partner and then also makes the other partner, you know, more uncomfortable and maybe they increase their distance. Now, let's say we have that same person get in a new relationship with a highly secure, highly reliable, consistent, trustworthy partner, those cues that activate that attachment anxiety and ratchet it up are no longer there. So now that same person who has a history of attachment anxiety may actually ratchet down their attachment anxiety because there's no cues. There's nothing that is reinforcing that anxiety anymore. And they actually come down to be securely attached to that new partner. So even if you have a history of past experiences, when maybe someone who's high in neuroticism may have a, you know, higher likelihood or kind of default to be anxiously attached to someone, that likelihood, that probabilistic nature is different than the actual relationship that's going on. And when we look at relationships and we're studying relationships, in research, we need to be very attentive to that specific relationship because if we want to understand how that person is functioning in that relationship, we need to understand the context and the nature of that relationship rather than this generalized, you know, kind of style of attachment. So in my perspective with how adult, romantic attachment or adult attachments operate is adult, the attachment system in a romantic relationship is looking for cues and context, whether to be activated and correct for anything that may be a threat to that pair bond. So um, in that nature of attachment systems paper, I propose of how the attachment system, you know, is really operating in relationships. And the attachment system, in my view, evolved to monitor and correct for threats to that pair bond, right? We're trying to maintain a pair bond is, you know, it's a lot of work to maintain a pair bond we need to be sensitive and attentive to different things that may threaten that. That can be outside of the relationship by, you know, exogenous people, you know, trying to poach you or your partner away from the relationship. It can be internal struggles and commitment issues within the relationship. It can be coming from different partners, but our attachment system is monitoring all these different types of threats that, you know, can uh, decrease the stability of the pair bond and, when our attachment systems detect those threats, so say an interloper trying to poach your partner, we respond to that. So our attachment system, in my perspective, is reacting to those in the form of mate retention behaviors and adjusting their behaviors. So the attachment system is like the motivating cognitive system that's like, oh, do this, you know, do a nice thing for your partner, do a mean thing for your partner, go, you know, confront this other person all to maintain the stability of that pair bond and also while evaluating whether doing so is fruitful. You know, so not all relation, most human relationships don't last, you know, for example. At some point, the cost benefit calculation of continuing to invest in stabilizing that pair bond may eventually tip over into this is costly and not really worth it. And therefore the 
the bond begins to to fall apart or you know people separate and things like that so you know my view is the attachment system is monitoring these threats motivating these different types of mate retention behaviors to maintain the stability of the pair bond as long as that cost benefit calculation of maintaining that relationship is favorable and when it's not that that's what leads to relationship dissolution so that's kind of the primary argument of how attachment mate retention go together in my in my theory two things come to mind on this one, one yeah. that five to one or something like that ratio of positives to negatives and if it's messed up that ratio then the cost benefit analysis is failed and then the second item is this is somewhat inspiring because that means that you are not entrapped by your nature because with certain individuals that don't trigger or cue items in you that cause let's say a fear or a worry then that doesn't come up and now there's a relaxed peaceful state versus that uh, anxious state that can be yeah and i love when i dispel this idea of this continuity um of attachments and like this general style i tell people i'm like i think that's really empowering like you know I, and especially in today's environment where there's like this really big resurgence of kind of this like freudian idea that your parents have messed you up in all these ways and everyone needs you need to like hyper focus on fixing your childhood relationship issues and your parents to fix everything. I know somebody who is very focused on this at this time. Currently. Yeah. It's become very popular and I'm just like, God, that just seems really stressful to be like that hyper focused on that all the time. And I think it's actually empowering. It's like, Oh, all our past experiences don't, you know, dictate how we are in our relationships, our relationships with our parents when we were young that we had very little control over aren't, you know, a uh, prescription for how our relationships are going to go in adulthood. So I think that's actually quite empowering of, you know, we have the ability to kind of take a fresh start in new relationships with different people um, and understanding what your attachment system is responding to of our, you know, for example, with uh, people that may have higher neuroticism may default to a little bit more anxiety over situations understanding that that anxiety is responding to certain types of cues can help you understand, am I overreacting to a certain type of cue? Um, there is research with folks um, comparing those that have anxious attachment versus avoidant attachment. You know, Unsurprisingly, those that are anxiously attached to their partner over-interpret ambiguous things as threats. So say uh, your partner you know, sees someone they haven't seen in a while, gives them a hug, like, oh, it's great to see you. Someone that is more anxiously attached to their partner may be like, oh, that that's a threatening behavior, right? So they must, you know, that indicates lower commitment. Maybe, maybe they're interested in someone else, you know, that's a threatening behavior. And then, especially, yeah, it's a fearful response. And then attachment anxiety is strongly related to negative mate retention behavior. So kind of these more manipulative things, um, just, you know, more negative partner directed behavior. So by understanding that, okay, maybe I just have a little bit higher anxiety. Maybe let's, uh, maybe I'll ask, you know, ask my partner some questions about that person rather than over-interpreting it as a threat. Um, so understanding how those things operate can maybe help you communicate better and also decrease that kind of threatening response. Um, whereas on the other hand, the avoidant folks under-interpret <laughs> actual threats, uh, to their relationship. So if people are highly avoidant, they may just be like, oh, it's, that's whatever would, maybe, you know, those people might want to just, you know, again, maybe communicate with their partner about things um, or be a little bit more attentive um, about those things. So um, I think it's empowering to not be entrapped by, you know, parental relationships when you're a child um, and understand that each, you know, romantic partnership can be different and unique because that other person matters a lot for how those attachment relationships actually unfold between two people. So I think more knowledge and uh, more relationship specific focus on attachment theory is just overall beneficial in my opinion. Quite a few great points there. And one that just came to my mind is that maybe the avoidant individuals could up their sensitivity, we could call it, and then the anxious individuals could mm -hmm. reduce their sensitivity because they're uh, out of whack, we could call it. And then what do you think about this metaphor of the anxious individual like uh, seeing the uh, other individual as someone that oh, I have to hold on to, I have to hold on to, like holding on to like tightly or they will disappear. 
Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of mixed research on like how attachment like pairs. So like there's ideas that like kind of the opposite attracts. So like maybe an anxious person and avoidant person are good together. Personally, I think that's a terrible combination because as we mentioned, like the distance is perceived as a threat and then it just, you know, ratchets that up. So I think that's unstable. Um, but also recognizing that true attachments and why I think, you know, another thing that I, opinion I hold that others may disagree with in the attachment space is I think only true attachment relationships are between romantic partners and parents and infants or parents and young children, not friends and all these other things that you can find in the literature. Um, because attachments like true attachment bonds take a long time to form, um, with children, they don't attach, they don't assess attachment in infants before a year old because the attachment system is not fully developed yet. So it doesn't make sense to, it's highly unstable for the first year or two. And that's why babies are all over the place with caregivers and different um, folks. And it takes about a year or two for them to stabilize, you know, recognize consistent caregivers and respond in consistent ways. And there's only one study I've come across that's looked at this in adults. And this was like from 20 years ago. So if anyone's doing this research still, you know, maybe look into this, but true attachment bonds in adults probably also take about a year or two to develop. So, you know, there are, you know, those minor sex differences and kind of those defaults and averages that come into play at the beginning. So, you know, women are slightly more likely to be anxious. These are small sex differences, but men slightly more likely to be avoidant, you know, playing into the stereotypes, but it takes some time. So, you know, after a year or two, most relationships, people tend to converge on secure. Um, and if you think about it, a lot of, you know, relationships don't last more than two years, right? People are dating for six months, eight months, a year or something separate, like this isn't working. But when we look at relationships at last, it's usually because both partners kind of come to converge on a more secure, stable place in those relationships. So I think part of the reason why, you know, some of the relationships, you know, don't last is because there can't, B, they're not getting to that stable, secure space. And, you know, they're over-interpreting things, under-interpreting things, distant, overly clingy. Um, so I think, you know, that people default to become more secure in their relationships. But, you know, after several years, if it's still like, I need to cling to, you know, like, let's uh, assess the cost benefits <laughs> maybe of what's going on in that relationship. But there's a lot of interesting areas that haven't been explored. And that was one of the, that nature of attachment systems came out right when I finished my PhD. And there's a lot of, like, if I were to have gotten tenure track position, that would have been the line of research that I continued. So hopefully, you know, people will find that paper and find interesting things. There's a lot of predictions in there to test, which I would, I would love if someone were able to do that. This is quite informative as, as far as uh, pairings and what people look to. Now, one thing that comes to mind is you mentioned uh, mate, mate retention a few times. What have you looked at in terms of mate retention? Are there traits that increase it or is it what people do to retain a partner? Yeah, so this was um, some of the earlier research I did on attachment theory kind of in this evolutionary framework that informed a lot of the building of the framework that I've been talking about. And the early research, I've replicated this now in several samples, um, across, I think, three different countries now, of uh, especially a very strong relationship between anxious attachment and cost-inflicting mate retention behaviors, which when we look at mate retention behaviors, we generally look at kind of two broad categories, one being cost-inflicting, which are very negative, manipulative behaviors that I like to describe. They have a short-term benefit of like manipulating, you know, someone and like, oh, well, if you really love me, you would do this. Or like, I feel really uncomfortable, like I need you to do this kind of idea. Um, all the way up to very negative, like intimate partner violence, which was another kind of branch of some of the work that I did. My dissertation focused on attachment anxiety and intimate partner violence. So when we say cost inflicting, it can go from very like, you know, kind of mild, like emotional manipulation all the way up to like, you know, domestic violence. Um, and then we have this other category of like benefit provisioning behaviors, which are a lot of the nice things that are meant to really in increase your partner's satisfaction. Like you buy them a nice gift, you give them compliments, um, you know, kind of public displays of affection, like those kind of things, more of like these traditional nice <laughs> things that we're supposed to do in relationships. Um, and consistently in the research, the link between avoidant attachment and mate retention behaviors is quite 
erratic in the samples that we've looked at. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. It's, it's just not very robust and consistent. Whereas the link between attachment anxiety and cost-inflicting behaviors is very strong and robust across all these different samples. And these are in very diverse samples, uh, such as the U.S., um, German-speaking countries, so like Australia and Germany, uh, or Austria and Germany, and then um, also in Iran. So we have like quite different kind of cultures that we've looked at this in so far. Um, and that anxiety and cost-inflicting link is very strong. We also see um, in a recent paper that came out, um, we looked at actual couples rather than just reports from just one person. We did a dyadic study where we had couples come into the lab and we replicated this across two different um, country samples in the U.S. and German-speaking countries where there's a recipro reciprocity effect. So if you do a lot of nice things to your partner, your partner is also likely to do nice things back to you. If you're mean to your partner, they're going to respond with meanness. So like, you know, this isn't necessarily like groundbreaking insights, but it is important to understand, you know, what you put into your relationship is also going to be kind of mirrored back. Um, and the more cost inflicting behaviors that people are engaging with increase anxiety in the relationship, decrease satisfaction, lead to dissolution. So while some of these cost inflicting mate retention behaviors feel like they may have a short term, like immediate kind of effect, long-term, they can be quite detrimental for relationship stability. Um, you know, so th that's, that's something to think about. And then, um, my dissertation really focused on that link between attachment anxiety and intimate partner violence. So looking at that as a very strong, robust risk factor, um, across both men and women in relationships for predicting, you know, physical and emotional and sexual, um, coercion and abuse in relationships. So there's a very practical, um, you know, clinical application, um, from kind of this framework for understanding, you know, those more dangerous behaviors as well. <laughs> Classic. Now, one thing that comes to mind is the, I always think about the big five or other personality descriptors. Are there any features of the OCEAN that link to better mate retention mm. or pairing, or is it, you know, it can be any variation of each. This is where my, uh, distance from some of my graduate research is showing because I have a paper, <laughs> I have a paper on personality and mate retention, uh, behaviors. And we have a table <laughs> of all of them. Um, I can't remember the specifics, obviously neuroticism and anxiety, attachment, anxiety is very strongly replicated. Um, and we, from what I recall, which there is a paper on my website on this, but, uh, from what I recall, there's a lot of variety, right? So depending on what studies you're looking at, there can be positive, there can be negative relationships between the different big five personality variables and mate retention behaviors, which tells me that from what, from the data that we have, just a handful of studies that we've done in our lab, um, it's likely not a consistent relationship. And there's probably something else underlying those just due to the inconsistency of those, uh, of those relationships. But neuroticism is going to be, again, kind of consistently related to cost inflicting behaviors mostly do, at least in my opinion, to that um, strong relationship it has with attachment anxiety. But the rest of the big five are very inconsistently related to those different mate retention behaviors, which tells me there's probably something else that we should be looking at besides, besides those. Is the big five the only one that is used to look at people's personality or is any other um, used usually? The big five is the most popular and we have the most data. I prefer the hexaco model um, specifically, which is uh, six dimensions. That one I think came out about a decade ago. Uh, so it's still not as widely used, but I think it's a little bit more informative, especially with the honesty, humility factor. So if you Google like the H factor personality, like it's much more um, consistently related with behaviors that we care about, especially in a clinical sense, which is, you know, more of these negative, like violent kind of behaviors, that factor is much more predictive than, you know, kind of the, um, agreeableness slash disagreeableness factor that's in the big five, because some of the sub traits are, uh, switched around a little bit in some of those. So I personally find the hexaco model more informative, but when we're looking big picture over decades, the big five is still going to be the model that shows up in a lot of the research simply because, it's been around for a while. So like all the data and research around that. So it's hard, you know, to switch over to a new model, but I think the hexaco for a lot of specific research related reasons is a little bit more informative, um, than the big five model, but 
Um, it's just not as widely used yet. It means if you want to compare across studies, then it makes sense to use the big five. So there's a little bit of a issue of, you know, how do we switch over? Because then it kind of ruins some of the longitudinal comparisons you can make with previous studies. So there's a lot of practical implications of switching over those models, but I encourage people to look up the hexagon model and just kind of take a look at it. I think it's, I think the five or no, I don't think the 538 personality online quiz uses hexaco. I don't think it does. Never mind. But you should look it up. <laughs> the 538 personality uh, quiz is actually like online is actually based on personality research. If anyone is curious what their kind of model looks like of their own personality factors. One thing that comes to mind is your research is research. And then there is popular discussion of various topics. What would you say is, or does anything come to mind as any large items that there's the research and then there is what is discussed and they don't really match? Does anything come to mind there? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I would say the attachment stuff that we were talking about, because like, even like you look on psychology today, which is, you know, supposed to be like, you know, the psychology, like popular magazine. And it, there's still, you know, clinicians on there. They're like, oh, how, you know, your parents' trauma ruined all your romantic relationships. And these ideas of, you know, continuity between infancy and adulthood, which I just don't, it's not wrong, but it's not right either. Um, there's, of course, continuity, but it can be due to a whole lot, host of reasons, largely, you know, genetic reasons. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of the attachment, because it's been such a popular, big, pervasive theory in psychology since the 60s, it's so hard to change the conversation around that. Um, and that's one of, I think, the things that makes me a little sad that I didn't go into kind of a traditional 10-year track is because I wasn't able to continue, you know, doing this research. I haven't done this attachment research in, you know, like two years now. So it's a little disappointing that I can't keep, you know, kind of pushing, especially because I do talk about science and um, academia a lot. So I would have loved to continue on that line of research. But I think a lot of the popular discussions around attachment are still very much focused on kind of older, outdated research that honestly, if anyone's been paying attention to literature, like has had a lot of interesting nuanced discussions since 2000, the last 20 years on evolutionary frameworks, on, you know, personality and individual differences and more social psychological uh, work being integrated. Chris Fraley is a great example of someone who's really greatly influenced my thinking, the social psychology area. Um, and I feel like their work isn't in the popular kind of narrative, even the textbooks. Um, when I teach intro psychology, you know, you don't really get to choose what textbook you use. You just get what the school assigns, which I hate. And every attachment section is just like, oh, your attachment relationships with your parents influence your romantic relationships. There are these three or four categories, depending on what model they're using. And genetics has nothing to do with it. And like, that's the whole thing. And I'm like, we have learned so much in the last 20 years about this. Um, so I think that's a very outdated area. And even when I've been publishing things, um, I have a preprint on my website on the heritability of attachment systems um, that I never got around to finishing through the publication process for it, um, just because I'm in a different career now. So I just kept the preprint on my website. But even that, the feedback from reviewers and folks in the area, of, it's been so hard to get this work published because there's just like this really intense orthodoxy around attachment research and no one likes to hear other, you know, counter narratives to this isn't a cradle to grave perspective of how you are attached to your mom influencing everything in your adult life. Um, so I, I've, I've struggled with reviewers of getting things published, um, even in that area. And I don't think, you know, the picture's much better at all in the popular discussion of attachment theory. So I would love to see some updated attachment theory uh, work. Maybe I'll write about it at some point just to keep pushing it out but we'll see we'll see how much time i have <laughs> i like this distinction i think about it kind of like the fixed versus changeable or growth areas mm. or categories because one of them is like this is the way it's going to be this way and i guess it's not a very joyful category because it almost looks like you're trapped in a box and the other one is there's some features but then there's also ways to work with others that uh, includes your light uh, details that are there, but also you find linkages and items that don't 
trigger you or put you in a mode where you'll be weakened in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion and nuance lost around the difference between consistency over time, which of course we're like generally consistent. We are the same person we are, you know, genetically at birth, there is that consistency, but I think we diminish. And even from the behavioral genetic perspective, we diminish the role of just random chance and variation in your life that impacts who you are and how you interact with people. Um, and then we also diminish the impact of the environment, you know, very traditional, I like to say like old school behavioral geneticists love to, you know, diminish the impact of the environment, having any kind of impact on you. And it may not be a systematic impact. I don't think there's a large systematic environmental impact in a lot of ways. Um, but the situations we're in are going to greatly impact how we behave, how we interact with people with those specific situations. So I think some of that nuance is lost. You either have one side that's like environments, everything, um, and they ignore genetics, but then you have too many people on the genetic side saying that like environment doesn't matter. Everything's genetic, but it's not determinism, but it is all the same. And I'm just like, where's all the interesting discussion in the middle? Um, and I think attachments too much on the environmental side. Um, right now it's very difficult. I mean, I still have textbooks that say there is no genetic influence on attachment, um, which I show in that preprint that's on my website for anyone. It's like right at the top of the research page, there is a genetic influence and it looks just like every other trait that we know about, um, in psychology. So attachment still very much on the old school, like environment only side, not integrating genetics. There's a small handful of people that are integrating evolutionary theory into that area, but it's very outdated compared to, I think a lot of different areas like in psychology, such as like personality um, or intelligence research, for example, I think we're very far behind on attachment of integrating modern theories and what we know about genetics and evolution into the framework overall. So I think it's funny because in this category, it's either completely one end or the other, some sort of bias there, and then where the middle would be useful. And then in other categories, like a recent thing I saw where people were asked about percentage of people in the country that are of a certain uh, quality, everybody averaged toward the middle where actually it was more towards the outside. The funny disconnection from reality is entertaining on either end and it's, I guess, it exists, it exists. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good to know more. I think I posted about that. that it's good to know more to get yourself more rooted in what reality is versus if you're always defending something that's not actually the case, it's very tiring and you get exactly. exhausted. Yeah. And most things are always in the middle a little bit. We, we lose nuance in public conversation a lot because it's, it takes more work to read and write about, <laughs> but you know, it's where I think the better information's at. So that's why, you know, not everyone, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. You know, if you don't know enough about things, that's fine. I don't have opinions on everything, but you know, where you do focus on it and there's probably a more interesting nuanced discussion to have in the middle. Um, that's not on either extreme. So it's always good to remember that. Plus one for nuance from both of us here. <laughs> yes, always. My last, my last question to you is uh, who has influenced you the most or who are people you look to? And then also where can people find your material? Um, I think I mentioned uh, two folks already that I'll uh, just give a quick shout out to in terms of reading and you know my my breadth of reading and uh, diversity of different books and topics. Uh, definitely my PhD advisor, Todd Shackelford, he's a huge influence on me for reading um, and just, you know, wading into different areas and, you know, really focusing on viewpoint diversity and, you know, just engaging in a lot of different topics and conversations. So that diversity I really value. Um, and then with the attachment research, since we spent so much time talking about it, um, Chris Fraley at University of Illinois Champaign, uh, he has been such a big influence on my work and I encourage folks, he still runs a very active attachment lab, um, does a lot of interesting behavioral genetics work, all that nuance and attachment um, he does. So I would, if anyone found what I talked about interesting today, I would definitely look up his work um, as his lab still actively working in that area. So he's had a great influence on my work. Um, and then where you can find me is pretty much everywhere on the internet. Twitter is where I'm most active. You can follow me at Nicole Barbero. Um, I do have um, my two substacks, so bookmarkreads.substack.com for the books, and then peri uh, periodic pondering sub substack is nicolebarbero.substack.com. Um, I have my website, which is a little out of date, nicolebarbero.com. I will be updating that soon, so um, everything will be updated in the next couple months. Um, and then 
I do have Instagrams where you can follow me. I have a bookmarked Instagram. So if you're more into just like short videos and posts about books rather than reading Substack, I have the corresponding uh, bookmarked reads Instagram page that you can follow. So search my name and you can find me and you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. If you're in more of the professional workspace and would like to connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a note. Um, I don't accept everyone like on Twitter. So if you're on LinkedIn, send me a note like, Hey, I saw you on this podcast and I'll be sure to accept you on there. So just send a little note when you send the connection request. So. Hey, super cool. Dr. Nicole Barbaro. I would like to thank you for having been on this episode described a bit about attachment systems and theories, also science education and bringing quite a bit to us about how people connect and what can cause pairings to retain or not. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a delightful conversation. Glad to. And we are out.